Welcome to Patients at Risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host, the co-author of the book Patients at Risk and the author of the follow-up book Imposter Doctors, Rebecca Bernard. Nurse practitioners are increasingly earning doctorate degrees. In the past, those doctorates would have been PhD degrees and nurses would go on to teach or to perform research. However, increasingly, nurse practitioners are earning what's called a DNP or Doctor of Nurse Practice degree and then working clinically. And in some cases, they are asking to be called doctor. In fact, three nurse practitioners recently sued the state of California for the right to call themselves doctor. Today, I'm being joined by Professor Arthur L. Kaplan. He is a professor of bioethics and the founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Dr. Kaplan earned his Ph.D. from Columbia, and he holds seven honorary degrees from colleges and medical schools. He is the author or editor of 35 books and more than 860 papers in peer-reviewed journals. He's served on a number of national and international bioethics committees, including serving as chair for many of them. He's been named the USA Today Person of the Year. He's been described as one of the 10 most influential people in science by Discover Magazine and one of the 100 most influential people in biotechnology by Scientific American Magazine. He's won multiple prizes for biomedical ethics, including public service awards from the National Science Foundation, and he's been honored with Lifetime Achievement Awards for Bioethics and Humanities. So to me, when Dr. Kaplan holds an opinion on an issue, I think it's worth listening. So thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Kaplan, and tell our audience a little bit about your position and what you shared publicly about your thoughts on who should be called doctor in healthcare? Well, I have a PhD. <clears throat> I don't have an MD, although I did go to med school briefly before I abandoned ship and went and got a philosophy PhD. But uh, I would never, in certain settings, refer to myself as a doctor. If it's a clinical setting, a hospital setting, a nursing home, a clinic, I'm not going to call myself doctor because people immediately assume patients that you are a physician and that you have a license to practice medicine, prescribe medicines, carry out certain activities that are unique to what trained MDs are permitted to do. So I'm willing to call myself doctor if you want to give me a honorary degree at a college graduation. That's fine. I'm not denying that PhDs sometimes are referred to as doctor, but in settings of healthcare, I think it's wrong for anyone other than an MD to refer to themselves as doctor. And I know people sometimes say, well, what about your dentist? They sometimes use the term doctor, and sometimes they do. I've heard that. But they, uh, I think, are clinical practitioners. And I think when you're at the dentist, you're not fooled by or or uh, if you will, uh, deluded by the dentist calling themselves a doctor. So for me, to be clear, the moral principle is, I don't care what nurses think. I don't care what social workers think. I don't care what bioethicists think. What I care is what patients think. And what patients think is people call themselves doctors or MDs. And so 
when you're around patients, when you're around uh, people who are uh, seeking care, that's got to be the line for me. Well, I think that that's 100% right. And I believe that studies have shown quite clearly that patients are confused about the clinicians that are taking care of them. Many see a a doctor of nursing practice. And in fact, nowadays, most nurses that go on to do advanced training, they're less and less getting PhDs unless they want to go a teaching route. More often, what we're seeing is this new concept called the doctorate or doctor of nursing practice. Mm -hmm. Have you heard much about this new degree? Well, I have. In fact, one of my former students, Mary Mundinger, helped promote the degree. (laughs) I had her in class when I was at Columbia in one of my first teaching jobs, and she uh, was there and stayed there and eventually became the dean of nursing there. So I know quite a bit about it, and I know a few things. One is it's great to have uh, advanced uh, study. I'm certainly all for that. I think it's very important to respect what nurses do. Many patients will say they like and admire their nurses as much or more than their doctors, depending on how sick they are and getting taken care of by them in an ICU or in a uh, situation where they're really dependent on uh, the care that uh, nurses provide. I also know that that degree is varied. You can get it online, you can get it in person, you can get it in two years, you can get it in four years. It's not particularly standardized. So that bothers me. I'm not against, again, people doing advanced study and respecting that work when it gets done. But that uh, doctor of nursing practice degree isn't quite the PhD, even though it has the term doctor in it. Yeah, I haven't earned a PhD, of course, but I've certainly talked to people that have. And from what I understand, that is a serious undertaking to have your dissertation and have to defend your dissertation. I mean, this is a big deal. And the difference is some of our DNP curricula are really pretty lightweight. And I'll show uh, on our video a screenshot of St. Louis University's Doctor of Nursing Practice curriculum, which includes uh, hours on healthcare policy, uh, interpersonal collaboration, clinical informatics, leadership in healthcare. These are what I would consider more of the soft sciences. There's certainly not a lot there as far as clinical practice of medicine. And it's so interesting that you talked about Mary Mundinger, because as you said, she really was one of the the main people that endorsed this DNP. And then more recently, within the last few years, in 2019, she published an article uh, saying that she was concerned about DNPs because only 15% of the current uh, programs are actually clinical in nature. So most of these doctorates are not providing a clinical focus, which even strengthens the argument you want to be called a doctor because you're doctorally prepared, but yet your doctorate really is not necessarily helping you to actually practice they, I don't even know what to call it because you can't call it practicing medicine. They would say practicing advanced nursing. And now the new spin is to say we're, we're practicing healthcare. So talk to me a little bit about your thoughts on that. What should a nurse practitioner say? Are they practicing medicine, nursing? What is it? Well, I think they practice nursing and I think they practice healthcare. And I think we kind of reserve medicine for the practice of what doctors do. So part of this is you have to respect what everybody does. And I do. I'm in clinical settings a lot. I get called in for case consultations, talk with families who are fighting, 
sometimes get into uh, battles between doctors and try to resolve them and that sort of thing. It's a nice skill. It's in healthcare, but it's not medicine. It's uh, practicing bioethics, if you want to call it that. I uh, think that if we understand that physical therapists do important things, that social workers do important things, chaplains do important things, we don't have to dub everybody a doctor to give them the respect they deserve. It's a complex healthcare system. Look, I spent many years as a kid in rehab medicine post-polio. I didn't see many doctors. I saw a lot of physical therapists, saw a lot of occupational therapists. They did great work, and they absolutely have uh, my respect and admiration and so on for what they do. But getting into this battle is partly a battle about privilege and title when you're in healthcare settings, uh, that people want to command more respect. There may be a money angle. People may start to get paid more. Doctors get paid more than I do, although that isn't always true. I've been looking at some hospital pharmacists lately. They're doing pretty well. But it could be partly a uh, pay uh, dispute, if you will. But at the end of the day, let's keep the focus where it should be. It's not supposed to be a fight among doctors and nurses and social workers and chaplains and whoever else is there about who's prestigious and who gets to be called doctor. It's what do the patients think? What's in the interest of patient understanding? I've never done a survey, but I don't have to because I've done informal ones with my family, with uh, um, students, and anybody who calls themselves doctor, if they're standing inside a building that says hospital on it, is going to be presumed to be an MD. By the way, there's a cousin issue here. You know it because you went through it in your own career. When do you get to be called doctor if you're in med school? So we have a lot of med students who get called doctor, and sometimes they correct that and say, I'm not yet one, <laughs> I'm a student. We have badges at NYU, and many schools do, that say medical student on them, not doctor. So even though uh, you know some of them are carrying out the duties that doctors might do as they train, they shouldn't be called doctor until they are doctors. Well, that makes perfect sense to me. I think the challenge that we're facing is that there has become a significant overlap in the roles and responsibilities mm. that different clinicians are taking on. And I think that is where we're seeing some of this arguing back and forth. And some people like to call it a turf war, but it's kind of a cognitive dissonance to me because on the one hand, you're saying there's a physician shortage. And then on the other hand, you're saying there's a turf war. Uh, I don't know that you can have really both of those things coexisting really in, an, in a meaningful way. So my question as a bioethicist is, what is the ethical obligation for clinicians to ensure that patients understand what what type of clinician we are? And further, do patients have any type of right to ask for a physician in a certain healthcare setting? Well, I think patients absolutely have the right to know what your training is. You can say I'm a nurse and I also have an advanced degree. Uh, it's in nurse practice. And, you know, that's interesting. Nurses uh, do that. Uh, you can say I'm a pharmacist, but I have a specialty, as many do now. They may be a uh, pharmacist who specializes, say, in cancer care or in uh, other areas of healthcare. And I think patients would like to know that sometimes. Most of the time, they're not that interested, but sometimes they want to know. So I think the patient has the right to know. 
uh, who's taking care of them. I think uh, patients can also request a particular practitioner if they want. However, that does not always have to be honored. And what I mean is you may not have someone available who can fit what they're asking for. You know, I would like to have the head of uh, the Mayo Clinic uh, hepatology department uh, do my physical exam, but probably not going to happen because he's not going to fly to where I am and uh, do that. Even if I was very, very rich, I doubt I'd see him So or her. So, um, you know, we make all kinds of requests. People make requests and say, I want a doctor who's been a veteran. I want a doctor who's the same ethnicity as me. I want uh, someone who's not a uh, nurse practitioner. I want someone who's a primary care doc. You can make those requests depending on where you are. You might see some of them honored. I don't think, uh, you know, we're going to burden our schedule in the ER by trying to flip around who's taking care of you. There's no time and you're going to have to accept the reality there. But if you want to seek out a primary care provider who is a cardiologist, a pediatrician, an internist, a family medicine person, people do that, right? And patients shop around and some of them see nurses as their primary care person. One other comment on all of this title stuff. More and more, people are told who they're going to see. There are a lot of practices that say, you're going to see the nurse practitioner, and if she thinks you need to see the doctor today, you will, but you may not. So I see nurses triaging access to doctors. Um, You know, it's, it's a situation, again, where choice, I value it, but within our healthcare system as it stands, it's not always given. That's where we cross over from ethics into market economics and other forces. Uh, I I do think that when you have a more educated patient population who are asking these questions, then my hope is that administrators and managers and those who make these decisions will see and appreciate the value of having physicians remain it hopefully at the helm of medical teams, which is my goal. Uh, as as you, I appreciate all different members of the, the the clinical team, but the person that should be helping to guide those decisions, I would think, would be the person with that most training and experience. If I was talking when I talked, if I when I talk to patients or prospective patients, what I tell them is: here's some things I think that are very important in trying to get better care for you. One, I think you need more time with your doctor and they're not paying for the time. And so there's a lot of rush in seeing doctors. Um, And it can be for seeing a nurse, but if you only are told you've got 10 minutes and next patient is coming and you better keep turning them over, then it doesn't really matter whether you have a doctor, a nurse, or an engineer or someone who's, you know, a third baseman. I mean, you don't get enough time. It's like you can't do the job. So that's something that I think you should care about. And I think it's also important to say to people, how experienced are you? As you just mentioned, not all doctors are the same. If I'm going to go get my knee replaced, I'd rather have somebody who did a lot of them than did a few of them. So experience counts. And I'm sure any resident will tell you when they start their road their studies uh, after medical school, the person they rely upon the most is probably the nurse that they work with to figure out what in the heck is going on around here. Now that changes. So those are the important dimensions. What title you call yourself, it's way down on my list. Again, if we learn to respect the work that everybody's doing, 
then I think from the patient point of view, you know, we don't have to call everybody general and we don't have to call everybody uh, colonel. You know, there are a lot of different people making contributions at many levels of experience, training, study, degree, all of that. So I think it's important not to get tangled in that fight. The other thing you mentioned is a bit of a turf war that goes on. I think dentists, nurses sometimes want more authority. And for example, I'm a proponent of letting pharmacists give vaccines. We don't have enough people to give them. I think you can train to do it. And great. So their authority expands beyond what it once was. Some nurses want prescription authority. I think that might make sense if you're in rural Alaska and you're not going to see anybody for 500 miles and maybe you don't even have good Wi-Fi. This is who you've got. You need basic medicines. I think they could probably, you know, prescribe your diabetes medicine or the sort of common ailments. But as we say, some of this is turf. Some of it is being able to have a nurse anesthetist do what a fully trained anesthesiologist does, which I don't agree with. I think there are training differences that make outcome differences. But at the same time, you know, there are areas in our healthcare system where we're stretching authority. Doesn't mean we have to stretch the title, but we can stretch the authority to meet gaps and uh, access issues. Thank you for those comments. And I think any of our listeners will can easily tell that when you discuss this topic, just as you did in in your writing and in your um, video that you created, that you're talking in a very respectful manner. And uh, there's no nurse bashing or any any real negativity coming from here. So were you surprised, considering the, the, the tone that you've taken at the pushback and the comments, mm-hmm. maybe you didn't look at them, I don't know, but as when I've written about these topics, uh, you, there will be hundreds of comments that are quite strong and critical. I'll just read one for, for you from Anne-Marie Ball, RNBSN MPH, who says, this has got nothing to do with medical ethics. It's all about power, ego, money, and good old-fashioned misogyny. Now, re- reading that, I don't you don't strike me as a misogynist uh, or you know an egotist or someone that's just getting. You're a professor. I doubt that money is a big, huge factor for you. But um, how do you respond to these kinds of comments? Well, look. Partly, there's some merit in that criticism. There is ego and. Uh, uh, you know, prestige claims on the line. I wouldn't deny it. I just think they're misplaced. Again, it's your work that gives you the honor and the prestige, not your title. Um, I think that uh, at the same time, yeah, there was a lot of pushback and a lot of people said, you don't understand what this advanced nursing degree is or what goes into it. And for some people, it is a lot of work and it can be very clinical and I get that. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that you become a physician privileged to do what MDs do by doing an advanced degree. As I keep saying, I have an advanced degree. I spent seven years getting a PhD and going to a lot of classes. It was pretty miserable uh, labor, and you had to basically get a book published to get out of the PhD in philosophy. But I don't prescribe medicines. And I don't run around uh, checking people for papilledema. And I don't, uh, you know, I don't do medical things just because I have an advanced degree. If I want to do doctor things, I'll finish medical school. 
Well, I always find it interesting when the sexist card gets played and the misogyny card, considering that now more than 50% of medical medical school class are are women. Exactly. And in my group, Physicians for Patient Protection, our board, we're always fighting to get more men on board. It seems Uh, like women, women doctors get really fired up and passionate about this issue. First of all, I can't tell you how many times we walk into a patient's room and we're addressed as nurse or, you know, the doctor never came in to see me. I just... I kept seeing that nurse all yes. the time. Yes. No, I hear it that the other in the other direction. I hear it a lot. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So just call just pointing out to anyone that's saying that this is a sexist issue, the the reality is nowadays, guess what? Women can be doctors too. Male nurses running around the NYU hospitals a lot. I would say they're not a majority by any means, but I'll bet 15%, something like that. You can't presume just because someone is male that they're not a nurse, that those days are gone. No, I don't think, I mean, flat out, I'll say this debate, this fight, this argument has zero to do with misogyny, sexism, gender issues. It just doesn't. It's the, that those are not what's fueling this. They may fuel some other things, but they don't fuel this issue. It seems to me that as, as with the use of the term provider, uh, the upgrading to doctor for non-physicians is really sort of a way of trying to equalize or level the playing field mm-hmm. so that we're all the quote the same. I see it as a way that organizations that would like to pay less money or substitute for physicians are able yeah. to show show patients, no, no, they're, they're just as good. Don't worry. And they can pay mm-hmm. them potentially less and uh, the patients may not know any better. Yeah, no, I agree. That's what I meant when I said there's a pocketbook issue here. It may be that third-party payers or clinic directors or people looking to save money are able to hire someone slightly cheaper to do the same work and get away with it if they can also start to fudge terms like provider, as you say. I'm not a big fan of providers. I am a big fan of particular people, nurses, doctors, physical therapists who give care. And I'll tell you another term that I don't want to be called. I don't want to be called a consumer. I'm a patient. And I sometimes if I'm in research, I'm a subject. I could be a participant. I'm all right with that too. But um, when I start listening to people converse about providers and consumers, Um, I think that language belongs over in real estate and in buying uh, stuff at Walmart and uh, shopping online, but it's not healthcare. Everybody in healthcare who provides care should be seen as doing professional work. I think they all are due uh, respect. When I hear about uh, nurses getting threatened or violence in the hospital against healthcare doctors and nurses, it really bothers me because that's the altruistic caring side of humanity that I don't think deserves any of that. But yes, payment, money, savings. Look, if we really want to talk about the threat about who's going to be called doctor, you know what it is? AI? Yes, it's the (laughs) chatbot. So the cheapest way to see The title doctor thrown around is by all the private equity people who are pushing, get your mental health care online, get your drugs uh, online, uh, see Dr. Chatbot and uh, you'll be fine and you don't have to get out of your house and it's cheaper. Um, That's where the fight is going to go. And I resist that. I think 
Dr. Chatbot should just be a chatbot or AI who can assist and augment, but you need the care provided under the supervision of a healthcare professional. I'm not ready to uh, see Dr. Robot myself. So if we really want to talk about where that fight's going, it's right there because that's where you save money. Yeah, and there's definitely concern that some non-physician practitioners with abbreviated training then using AI to augment what they know that that will be something we'll see more of. Uh, and it is yeah. something to be very cautious of. I think it's really good that we're weighing in from a bioethical standpoint, because what I always keep going back to, I had to pull my old ethics textbook out, which is the whole concept of medical ethics of beneficence and non-maleficence. Of course, we have patient autonomy there. Sometimes I think that's going too far where I'm seeing, you know, IV infusions mm -hmm. and full body MRIs saying, well, that's what patients want. Well, we have to remember patient autonomy is one of three. We have to factor benef uh, beneficence and non-maleficence. And I really think this isn't just NPs and PAs. This is also, I'm speaking to physicians. It's time to push back against that and to really revisit our medical ethics. Yeah, you know, I, you're talking little bit to the choir here, because I've been writing for many years that the uh, autonomy pendulum has swung too far. Uh, yes, those other principles come into play. And also, look, um, there's a knowledge difference. There's a gap. I can't say, I, I feel like I have a headache. I'm going in and you will now give me an MRI because that's what I saw online was the best thing to examine your head or something. I don't have any knowledge. My uh, informed consent about what to do about headaches is in the hands of others. So I'm going to bring up another word. I think there's some room for some paternalism in medicine. You just have to accept the idea that sometimes an expert knows more than you. Now, that's something that our society isn't so comfortable with. We see it getting kicked around in public health. People are backlashing against climate change experts, COVID experts, there's a lot of uh, rejection saying, I know best, I can decide. Well, you don't know best and you can't always decide because there are vast areas of specialized knowledge. I've been privileged enough to hang around medicine for 40 years. I don't claim, again, to know, you know what experts in medicine know, but I've seen enough to know what they're expected to know, and it's quite a bit. So you're right, just because I say, um, I want this or I want that. It isn't a restaurant. And I'm not supposed to be ordering services from someone who then is obligated to deliver them to me. I want to hear what the chef recommends and I want to know what uh, people think the reviews are and I want to know what the experts are who've dined there before me before I'm just saying I think I'll you know, I want the pecan pie, uh, not knowing that it was made four days ago and uh, was dropped on the floor a couple of times. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. Autonomy is getting us in some trouble, too. It's a cultural thing, not unique to medicine. But, yes, uh, we have to be careful about uh, just saying we do what the patient says. I think that I find myself thinking a lot about paternalism in that I was trained during a time that we're definitely away from that and more about shared decision making. Mm -hmm. But I, I I totally agree with you in that I think the the requirement where we have to 
almost coddle people and give them such a detailed and lengthy explanation as to, I know I'm telling you something and you're saying, but why? And I don't understand. And, Mm -hmm. and I think that that must be contributing to physician and clinician burnout Mm -hmm. because there is this constant feel sense that you have to defend yourself and you're, and justify and explain and over explain and argue. And it's, you know, frankly, it's exhausting and absolutely Mm -hmm. COVID has, has pushed it even farther. But even outside of that, I do find that that's something that I think is very fatiguing for doctors. Not that I want to go back to a completely paternalistic. No, 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 no. But but the worst area I can think of, this may be a good note to end on, is end of life care. So we have all kinds of things being done because families or sometimes patients demand them, insist on them. People say, I want everything done. The doctor is there, and I know this because I spend most of my time either in ICU or palliative care settings, but you know, we know that it's futile. We know that it's hopeless. We know that we're going to hurt the patient if we continue to do aggressive, invasive things to them, and we can prolong suffering in ways that shouldn't happen to a child or an adult patient. We don't speak up enough and say, look, this is the end. We've got to switch to palliation, emotional support. We're not going to abandon you, but this notion that we're going to keep, you know, resuscitating you, or we're going to look for a pig heart to put in you, even though you have nine other morbid diseases and are 89 years old, that's an area that has us in trouble because you know what? It costs us a fortune. Right. And it produces a lot of unnecessary suffering. So, you know, that if I you were going to ask me, what's my number one area to tamp down autonomy? It's probably in the end of life area. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, thank you so much, Professor Kaplan. I really appreciate your time and you uh, weighing in on this really important topic. Yeah, it's a good subject. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to learn more by getting the book Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, and the follow-up book, Imposter Doctors, Patients at Risk. You can find those at Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. If you're a physician and you'd like to learn more about getting involved in our mission, which is advocating for physician-led care and truth and transparency among healthcare practitioners, please join our group. It's called Physicians for Patient Protection. You can learn more at our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. And if you have a comment or a topic for our podcast or you'd like to join me as a guest, please send me an email through my website, patientsatrisk.com. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast.